Welcome to our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. Last week's message challenged us as a church to grow stronger corporately by everyone individually gathering faithfully and giving generously. This week, we will look at two more next steps that every spirit-filled Christian should take. Join Pastor Brad Cunningham for part two of this message titled, Everyone Taking Next Steps. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. If you've been with us uh, for the past couple of weeks, we kicked off the new year with a series titled Stronger. And the thesis of the series has been simply this question, that what steps do we all need to consider individually so that the overflow of those steps individually would be that our church would become stronger corporately? Week number one, uh, we talked about, encourage everyone to pursue the spirit-filled life. And then last week, uh, we talked about everyone uh, taking next steps, and we taught on two next steps last week. Uh, We talked about gathering faithfully, and we talked about people giving generously of their time and treasure. And so today, we're going to look at two more steps here this morning. Uh, And let me say this on the front end. I I realize fully that the steps we're going to teach today, many of you have already taken these uh, steps, but but don't check out. Uh, Here's why. Last week, we taught that a pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so what is the work of the ministry? It's making disciples. It's communicating biblical truth and and next biblical steps to people coming behind you in their spiritual journey. And so today, uh, when we talk about uh, the next steps of membership and baptism, uh, here's the question, even if you've taken those steps, here's the question uh, I would ask you today is is this, is that if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm a a newer Christian, I just made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, but but I've been baptized, is that really a big deal, and is that something I have to do, or or, hey, I've been coming to the church for a while, I know you you go here and you're a member here, but but we've not made that membership commitment, so is that something that we should do, is that biblical? So so here's a question I would ask you, if someone came to you and asked those questions, could you, as a disciple maker, which is what you are if you know Jesus Christ, right? As a disciple maker, could you open up the scriptures and say, hey, let me walk you through this biblically? Or would you give the default answer, which my experience is, is this, uh, let, let's go find a pastor, right? Okay, so, so I'm going to equip you, say, hey, I'm going to know this and equip you from the scriptures on how to encourage someone biblically to take these next steps. Now, normally we like to teach through a a book of the Bible or sections of books of the Bible, but, but the steps we want to talk about today are not all neatly contained in one chapter. We can just teach through uh, verse by verse, but we always want to start off with some base text. And so this morning, if you've got your Bibles or your phones, tablets, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today, and then we're also going to end up in Matthew chapter 28. So step one, we're going to look at Matthew 16, and then we'll look at Matthew 28 in step two. In our current culture, um, every human struggle has now been given a label and often a diagnosis. And that is a double-edged sword. People have struggled in previous decades with particular uh, struggles that have now been studied, identified, solutions have been offered, and uh, folks have gotten relief from those, so we praise God for that. But on the negative side of that uh, two-edged sword uh, is that uh, oftentimes inner man's struggles uh, which Christ is sufficient for and the word of God uh, offers us sufficient counts for all things pertaining to life and godliness. That in those inner man struggles, often those have been given uh, outer man labels. And, and in that, there is no hope 
uh, that once that's your label, that's now your struggle is a part of your identity. So, so for example, it's not, hey, I'm, I'm battling some anxiety. It's, oh no, you're an anxious person. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm battling depression, discouragement. You're a depressed person or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you want to do. And so oftentimes the inner man struggles have outer man labels and the challenge is there, there's no hope in that. That's just who you are. That's a part of your idea. That's as much a part of you as all your other physical organs uh, in that idea or uh, movement. And so um, the reality is that um, th- that's that spilled over into all kinds of places uh, in culture where this this general uh, thing goes on and we just give all these labels. And so, for example, if an adult came to me and said, hey, I'm 47, oh, he's my age, I'm 47, and I've been dating this person, uh, we've been dating seven, eight, nine, ten years, uh, but I'm not totally sure that, that I'm ever going to uh, marry them. I, I can't just pull the trigger uh, on marriage. And so what I would do is I'd put on my biblical counseling hat and I would say, well, let's, uh, yeah, that wrong behavior, which by the way, dating for decades as a grown-up that doesn't lead to marriage is wrong behavior. Let me just put that on the front end, all right? That that root, that wrong behavior is rooted in a wrong belief. And so what, what is the wrong belief you have about the concept of marriage? You, you don't believe the Bible in Proverbs where it says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And you know, I'd wrestle through all those realities. But, but in our current culture, uh, that's not an inner man's struggle to wrestle through. Uh, that now literally uh, is a phobia. That's not your fault that you can't commit to, to marriage or commit to this relationship that you've got, you've got a medical condition. It's not your fault. You actually suffer from uh, gamophobia. Listen to the definition of, from the Cleveland Clinic. Gamophobia, a fear of commitment or fear of marriage, can keep you from enjoying meaningful relationships. The painful breakup, divorce, or abandonment during childhood or adulthood can make you afraid to commit to someone you love. Psychotherapy can help you overcome this commitment uh, phobia. Now, could that be a real thing? Could totally be a real thing. I don't want to minimize that. But let me offer another plausible uh, scenario. The other scenario might be that you're selfish. And you don't want to defer to anyone else and, and kids and give away your money and your time. You want to do what you want to You want all the benefits of a relationship, but you don't want to sacrifice anything. And so you don't have gamophobia. You're selfish. And so the remedy for that is not psychotherapy. The remedy for that is repent and grow up. Amen? And if you're sitting there and you're <laughs> with someone you're dating, you're like, you're screwing everything up, right? And so, but here's what I've noticed. Guys are worse than this than girls. Can, can I get an amen? Right? Like guys want the benefits of relationship. They don't be alone. You know, fill in the blank, all that stuff. But, but, but listen, women will allow that and tolerate that uh, because they, they want, uh, you know, someone in their life. They don't want to be alone. And so guys will do that worse than women. And women will tolerate because they're like, I just don't want to be alone. Listen, if that's you, let me give you some biblical advice. Get a cat, all right? If you're lonely, get a cat, and God hates cats, so understand when I say that, how strong that counsel is, because here's what you are going to get if you say, I just want a man, but he's not going to be committed. You're not getting a man, you're getting a boy. Boys make messes and expect other people to clean them up. Men make commitments. But we live in a culture where apparently gamophobia it is widespread, a culture of non 
committal, where I want the benefits of whatever it is, fill in the blank, but I'm not totally interested in the sacrifice and the commitment. And I would argue this morning, from my vantage point as a pastor, is that that, that cultural trend is spilled over into the life of the church. And so when we look at that, what we see is, is simply that too many Christians are uh, dabbling in church and dating the church with, with no plans to make any kind of formal commitment. And, I, and I, this is just my opinion, so take it what it's worth. I believe that online churches exacerbated that reality exponentially. I want the benefits, I want the teaching, I want to see the worship, but, but as far as uh, serving, giving, building relationships, and those are messy, uh, I'm not interested in, in that, uh, so uh, let me just lean in. That leads to the first next step to consider for everyone, which is this, is to committing to membership formally. Let's look at the base text, Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. And Simon Peter replied, you are Christ. So, so this is just a little context that they're saying, you know, Jesus saying, who do, who do people say that I am? And, and then Jesus turns the table and says, well, who do you think that I am? Okay? And so here's, here's the answer. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, you may not realize this or not, but, but verse 18 has been the source throughout church history of deep theological uh, disagreements. So deep, in fact, that depending on how you interpret what Jesus is saying in verse 18 uh, can drive whether or not you're Catholic or Protestant. And this isn't the point of the message, but because we're in this verse, I can't help but not uh, teach, explain it for just a, a little bit here on verse 18. And so uh, in verse 18, when Jesus is saying, hey, listen, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, traditional Catholic teaching interprets verse 18 as Jesus telling Peter, hey, Peter, you are the rock and I'm going to build the church on you, And so traditional Catholicism has taught that, in fact, that makes Peter the first pope. And then there's this line of apostolic succession all the way down through, you know, just fill in the blank, right? And so, uh, but, but Protestants have said, no, no, listen, what he's saying is, uh, listen, Peter, uh, upon this rock, and what they would argue is that Jesus is now saying, pointing back to himself, says, hey, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, let me just tip my cards. I disagree with both of them, all right? And so here's what those who would argue and say, uh, well, you know, Jesus is now pointing back to himself, uh, you, Peter, uh, you, upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, they would argue and say, the reason that Jesus is now pointing back to himself is there's two Greek words. So, uh, but, but here's the reality. When you look at those in the Greek, the word uh, Peter there in the Greek is the word petros, O-S, O-S on the end. And the second word, rock, is Petros, Aos. And so people say, hey, those are two different Greek words, so he's clearly not still talking to Peter. That's actually not true. That's the same Greek word. One is the masculine form, one is the feminine form. And in Greek grammar, you could not refer to a male with a feminine form of, of a noun, all right? And so in fact, if Jesus was saying upon this rock and pointing back to himself, he's referring to himself in the feminine. And what we see in scripture is that Jesus is masculine in the relationship and the church is the bride of Christ or feminine. So, so what, what would I argue that's being taught here? Uh, I would argue this, that Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, 
Upon you I will build the church, but, but not in a Catholic, uh, Peter's the Pope sense, uh, Peter as the representative leader of the apostles and the authority of their teaching. So Jesus is saying, hey, and upon the authority of, of the apostles of which Peter, you are representative as the spokesperson we see in Scripture, and upon the authority of your teaching, I will build my church. And I think it lines up perfectly with Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 20. Listen to Ephesians 2.20. Jesus is describing the doctrine of the church as the, the inheritor of the new covenant. And here's what he says, Ephesians 2.20. Having been built, here, here it is, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Plural, right? Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you're also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So I'm not holding that Peter's the first pope. Matter of fact, when you read scripture, Peter's role diminishes as scripture plays out, his role diminishes. And so Jesus is saying, hey, upon the authority of the apostles and the authority of your teaching, which you received as eyewitness accounts, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As a matter of fact, on your authoritative teaching, the keys to the kingdom, this is verse 19, uh, the keys to the kingdom uh, are given to you, the apostles, because it's your gospel teaching of which Peter first preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are saved. He said it's on the authority of your gospel teaching that the keys to the kingdom of heaven are, are open and closed. Right now, now listen, uh, here's the good news. All that was free, <laughs> all right? Just a little theology lesson. I just couldn't help but teach that just a little bit. So, so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, listen, on, on the authority of the apostles and their teaching, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And so, uh, so I want to see two things that in verse 18 that Jesus says, two promises. Number one, uh, he says, Jesus I am, is going to build his church. Now, we started this series. We said, hey, one of the things we as staff, we, we honestly never talk about. We never say, uh, how can our church get bigger? We, we never ask that question. We've been growing. I'm grateful to God for that. Uh, we don't ask that question. Uh, our job is to uh, make the church stronger through initiatives and leadership. But, but here's why, theologically, we don't ask that question. Because it's not our job as pastors and staff and workers and lay people to build the church. Here's why. We can live with confidence that Jesus has already promised he will build his church. I'm resting in that truth. And so the question becomes, what is it, in fact, that Jesus is building? What is a church? And I think that question becomes even more important because if you get in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, Jesus Christ shed his blood for the church. So here Jesus makes a promise on the authority and foundation of the apostles and their teaching. I will build my church. Acts 20, 28, he says, I'm so committed to that that I'm willing to shed my blood for the church. So the question becomes, what exactly is this thing that Jesus is building? So much so that he's willing to shed his blood that we would call the church. Now, if you polled people out in culture, maybe even in this room, uh, some would say the, they would point to a denomination. I grew up in the Baptist church or the Catholic church or the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church or Philadelphia, so they would point to a denomination when they talk about the church. Uh, others would refer to a, a, a building, right? The church is, you know, this geographical uh, address. And so what is it the Bible is actually uh, teaching? So in your English Bible, when you see the word church, uh, in the Greek, it's the word ekklesia. 
And ecclesia simply means a called out assembly. And the word ecclesia is used somewhere in the Greek New Testament between 114 and 115 times. And in all those occasions, with the exception of a, a handful, uh, basically there's two views of the church being taught. Uh, one is uh, the church is being described as the church universal. That's everyone who's ever been saved in, in all of human history, right? And so you meet someone, they live across the world, you say, we don't belong to the same church. Well, theologically, if they're saved, they're part of the bride of Christ, the universal church, they'll be raptured out, whatever you think the timing of that is. And, and so we are partnering together, we're a part of the church universal, Right? But here's the reality. In those 114, 115 times it's used, that reference of the universal church, everybody who's saved, it's only used about four or five times in in that context. And so here's what that means. Literally, over 95% of the time when they talk about a church, he's not referring to the universal church, he's referring to a specific local New Testament church, which is a group of believers in a geographical region coveting together to carry out the great commission as God's plan A, and hear me, there is no plan B. And so that's what he's describing. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm gonna build my church. I'm gonna shed my own blood for the church, and this is what the church is. Baptized believers coveting together in a geographical region to carry out the great commission, and, and there's a certain way I want it organized, and there's some things you should be doing. That's the epistles. Here's some things you shouldn't do. That's also the epistles. Uh, here's the teaching that I want you to carry forth in a very organized, systematic fashion. So here's what that means. If you're listening, say amen. That Jesus is a big fan of organized religion. So much so that he said, I'm willing to shed my own blood for this, and I'm going to build my church on the foundation of the apostles, and there's a certain way I want it organized, there's a certain teachings I want them to cover and carry out. Matter of fact, when you don't do those things, I'm going to write some letters back to the church in the New Testament that are corrective, saying, hey, that's not how I want the church to organize and function. And so Jesus is a huge fan of organized religion, and it's called the church. Over the years, I've, uh, this has been a growing trend. Uh, people like, well, find I'm a pastor, and some people are very excited. Others, not so much. Oh, you're a pastor. How'd you get into that, that line of work? Well, I just bombed out of every other job I had, and this looked right. I just looked like an easy one. <laughs> and they would go on, you know, they, they want to see, you know, like, well, I'm not, I'm not a church person myself, and Matter of fact, I'm not a huge fan of organized religion, uh, but I do. But I, I would consider myself a very spiritual person. Now, on my best days, I'm like, I don't know what that means. On my worst days, when I'm critical, I'm thinking, I know what that means. You like to sit around and hit the peace pipe. Amen, you know what I'm talking about? Right? Spiritual. I'm in the spirit. And so when... Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna shed my blood for uh, the church. Uh, what he's describing is this organized, systematic, this is, how we're, this is what's important to teach, this is the function I want you to carry out. And so even if you're here like, hey, I'm just here 
Because someone made me feel guilty, so I came with them. And I'm not a huge fan of organized religion either. Listen, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus Christ shed his blood for the local gathering called the church, not some uh, individualized, free-range, hippie spirituality or whatever that looks like. And a matter of fact, Jesus uh, shed his blood for the church. Jesus Christ will rapture out his church. Jesus Christ will rule and reign with his church. And his church will dwell with him for all of eternity. Jesus is a big fan of the church. And so let me ask you a question. How are you going to wrestle with all that theological reality and come to the conclusion that the appropriate response to that truth, that Jesus shed his blood for the church, and that as a response to that, I'm going to spend my life dabbling in and dating the church but with no plans to make any kind of commitment to the church that Jesus shed his blood uh, for. So, so listen, you're, like, you're kind of leaning in. Uh, absolutely, because here's why. I want you to take everything in life, all your time, all your money, all your interests, all your passions, whatever it is the Lord's entrusted you with in this life, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of it and I want you to aim it towards heaven. I want to say, hey, what's going to last? What's going to, you know, what is moth and rust going to destroy? What, what could thieves break in and steal? Uh, it's all these things. What are the things that will last? Listen, when you study the Bible, only two things will last for all of eternity. One is the word of God. The Bible says your word, O oh Lord, endures forever. The second thing is the people of God. And so when you think, hey, these are the things that will last in eternity, here's what I'm challenging you, unapologetically to do. Put all your chips into the center of the table when it comes to to Christ and his church. You're like, that's a gambling reference. Quit being legalistic, amen? <laughs> and so the, the response can't be like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dabble, I'm gonna date, but I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna commit. I'm just gonna dabble uh, in the church. And so I just want you to listen. I want you to uh, put all your chips on the table because I want you to, Invest your life into something that, that is not going to fail. Which leads us to the second truth Jesus promised us. Number one, he said, I will build my church. So what is a church? What is it Jesus is building? Right? So what is a church? Number two, uh, the second promise Jesus said here about his church uh, is that, um, secondly, what's he say in verse 18? Look at with me. He said, I will build my church. What's he say about it? The gates of hell will not prevail Against it. Now, when you look at the landscape and the trends and statistics related to uh, American Christianity and the church, can we just be honest? It is a grim, discouraging picture out there on the uh, landscape of the church uh, in America and its influence. But, but here's what should buoy us when it comes to, if we get too discouraged, what should buoy us is the promise that Jesus, still to this very day, is building his church. And so what that means is, despite what's going on in America, Jesus is gathering for himself a people for from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all of them one day will worship him for all of eternity. If you think that's good news, would you just give a hoo-hoo for Jesus on the count of three? One, two, three. <laughs> Maybe I was hitting the peace pipe on the way over here from Mason. Amen. 
Praise God, a little communion wine never hurt anyone. I just want to share that. You ask a gambler, he said, hey, listen, if you had a sure thing, what would you do? Would you put all your money on it? He said, of course you would. Only a fool would not do that. And so what is a sure thing according to Matthew chapter 16? That Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, betting your life on the church that Jesus shed his blood for is a sure thing. Put all your chips in the middle of the table, church. Don't dabble. Don't date. Make a commitment and say, I'm going to invest my life here. Listen, I would just say this, listen, gently look at my face. I'm not mad. I'm not being harsh. Um, I just want to be honest this morning. If you say, hey, I, I, I'm probably never going to commit myself in any way, shape, or form to this church. I, I like the preaching. I mean, who doesn't? It's hot. Amen? But well, whatever, people are nice. But I'm probably never going to make any kind of formal commitment to this local church beyond just showing up every now and then. If it's not raining, it's you know, blah, 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 fill in the blank, whatever. Listen, here's what I would encourage you. Find a local church that you could commit your life to and pour your life into it, even if it means you have to leave this one to do it. You say, well, what if our church got smaller? If people took that seriously, got smaller. Listen, here's the question I'm asking. Well, what's it look like for a church to get stronger? And so when the, when the Bible says that Jesus shed his blood for the church, I don't have any problems calling people to that. That's not what I, listen, I'm not saying it because I'm mad at you. That's what I want for you. I want you to stand before the Lord one day and say, Lord, uh, you gave your life for the church. And as a response to that, the least I could do is I devoted my life to it. And so the church gets stronger. People make commitments. And the reality is I've heard all kinds of excuses why people don't do that over the years. Well, I'm not, you know, I don't really like church. I, there's a lot of hypocrites at church. Listen, you can go to heaven with a few hypocrites or you can go to hell with a lot. Right? Well, I had a, I'm not a big fan of organized religion. I think I've already made my thoughts clear on that. <laughs> right? Here, here's my favorite. I've had a bad experience in the past at church. Can I just tell you this? On more than one occasion... I've had a bad experience eating out at a restaurant. Clearly, I'm going to try it again. Amen? Like, I'm willing to take that risk today again. You know, I went through. It was a terrible coney. You know, I know what happened there. Oh, you went to Gold Star, not Skyline. Let me, let me share some wisdom with you, right? I'm going to go back. It was a terrible meal. I'm going to try it again. We got some groceries. They were rotten. I'm going to buy them again next week. So all this, like, well, you know, all these kind of things, I, I just, you know, so, and, and so, listen, let me just tell you, the response to Christ and his church and shedding his blood and, and all that, listen, it cannot be dabbling and dating. And you may be thinking, well, I, I appreciate that, but, but is membership a formal thing that's taught in the Bible? Because, listen, full disclosure, there are some denominations in the banner of Christianity that do not teach a concept and do not have membership in their church. And the reason they don't is because they believe they can lose your salvation. And let me just say this. If you come from that background, let me say this humbly, you're free to be wrong. All right? I just want to share that. Right? And so, so does the Bible even teach this idea of membership? Because who knows? Maybe I get a bonus for every 10 people that join, right? So what does the Bible actually teach? And so here's what I would say. Just like the word rapture is not used in the Bible, but the concept is taught, uh, I would say the word membership is not used in the Bible, but the concept is taught and strongly uh, implied. So let me just look at four quick passages this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 is a passage on church discipline. 
Verses 15 through 17, he says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile uh, and a tax collector. Some translations say, then treat him as an unbeliever, but put him outside the church because their unrepentance is damaging the corporate witness of the church for the glory of God. So put them outside the church. Let me ask you a question. How do you put anyone outside the church if there's no boundary marker of who's in the church and who's not? First Timothy 5, verses 9 through 12, Paul's giving instructions for enrolling widows on the list of who receives support from the church, and he writes these words, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for uh, good works. It's tough to imagine the church in Ephesus would have kept a list of widows who met that criterion, but yet have no formal list or means of identifying who was even a part of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 13, you get this an issue of church discipline, this person was unrepentant, and so Paul writes back and says, for what I have to do with judging outsiders is not those inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those on the outside, and so again, he's telling these people, hey, this person is unrepentant, it's damaging the witness of the church, you need to, you need to judge them on the outside, and God will take care of the people on the, on the outside, you need to judge this person who's inside the fellowship of the church, so he's clearly saying, there's a line, there's a boundary, you know who's in the church and who's not in the church. Uh, and then lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul's right concerning a man that has been church disciplined in the past. Now, I hold the position that this guy in 2 Corinthians 2, 6 is the same guy Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians 5. They should discipline from the church. But apparently, at some point in time, we can conclude this guy came to the place of repentance, but they were unwilling to forgive and reconcile with him, all right? So here's what we know. Probably a Baptist church. Amen? Right? And so, here's what he writes, 2 Corinthians 2, for such a one, this punishment, listen, by the majority is enough. This guy's repentant, right? So what he's saying, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Listen, when he says the punishment by the majority, you can't have a majority if you don't have a set number of people that comprise that. How do you know when you, there's a majority of people who are not receiving this pe- person back into the fellowship of the church? First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, uh, Paul's writing to pastors here, and here's what he says. He said, how does a pastor uh, shepherd the flock of God? Shepherd the flock of God among you. Let me ask you a question. How does a pastor shepherd the flock if he has no way of knowing who's actually a part of the flock and who's not a part of the flock? Fourteen years ago, next month, I came here as a pastor. And so in your margin of Bible, you say the greatest 14 years of my life, praise God, amen. And I remember in that interview process, I said, hey, it's a big building down there. And, and so like how many folks are coming to church at that point in time, and it was a few hundred, about 340, 350 people coming at that point in time. And I said, okay. I said, well, uh, let me ask you another question. I said, well, how many members do you have? I said, you get about 340 or 50 people coming on most Sundays. And, and how many members do you have? And they said, we have 2,800 members. And I said, so let me just get this straight. On any given Sunday, we can't find 2,500. Hundred of them. We, we don't know where they are. Is that right? Yes. I said, we're going to clean that up, right? 
Because here's the deal. How do you shepherd the flock if you have no idea who's in the flock and who's not a part of the flock? Every New Testament epistle is written to an actual local church. And so I would agree with uh, the conclusion of one author. He writes this. Jesus established the church to be a public, earthly institution that would mark out and affirm those who profess to believe in him. Jesus wants the world to know who belongs to him and who doesn't. And how is the world to know who belongs to him and who doesn't? They are to see which people publicly identify themselves with his people in the visible public institution he established for this very purpose, the church. And if some people claim to be a part of the universal church, even though they do not belong to any local church, they reject Jesus' plan for them and his church. And all that, I would say amen. Thank you. <laughs> now, some of you are getting nervous because we're pretty deep in the clock, and I told you there's two steps, and I just got through step one. Let not your hearts be troubled. You're going to get on time, all right? Because here's the deal in step two. I'm going to make a couple brief comments out of Matthew 28, and, and here's the deal. If these comments about this next step right from the Word of God don't convince you to take this step, then there's nothing I can add to it that will help. So the first step is committing to the church formally. Uh, the second one uh, is identifying with Christ publicly. My first church, I was 27 years old, and we started to make some changes. And I, I don't know if you guys know this or not. Did you know that when you make changes in church, not everyone's excited? Did you know that? And so we started making some changes, and one of the things is they had a traditional stand-up, sing, come forward, altar call, which there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, hear me. There's nothing biblical about that, nothing wrong with that, right? But I said, hey, I want to I have a little more intentional time to response. I want people to pray. I want to walk them through prayer time. I don't want them focused on the words in a song. I want them meditating. I want just, so we made a change, and we moved to the response time is kind of what we do here. And uh, shortly after that response, uh, there's a lady waiting for me after the service, and I don't have been a pastor probably less than two years at that time, but I, even at that young age of pastoring, I could tell by, by the look on her face that she was not waiting because she had a testimony she wanted to share with me. You know what I'm getting at? And she said, hey, I just want you to know that I noticed a couple weeks ago you stopped doing an you know, altar call and, and, uh, and you explained it, and, but I just want to tell you um, I think you're leading people to hell. And I thought, well, this is going to be a light conversation, Right? And I said, well, that's serious. And I said, I, I'm, I'm inter- I'm, I want to hear a serious, so, so I'm open to hearing what you have to say. And she said, well, it's very simple. She said, does the Bible not say that Jesus said, uh, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father? And I said, that's true. She said, you're not letting, you're, you're not letting people uh, identify with Jesus before men. So, so now they're in a position where they can't do that. So they're denying him before men. And so therefore, I think people are going to hell as a result of that. And I said, okay. And I said, well, I, I know that verse. I, understand. I appreciate your heart for Scripture. And I said, but when we wrestle with Scripture, can we both agree there is no stand up, sing just as I am, come forward, altar call, anywhere in the New Testament? Can we agree with that? Nothing wrong with that. Can we agree it's not biblical? Okay, I will, I will do that. But when Jesus called people, he always called them publicly. I said, I understand all that. And she said, then what do you think is the answer to this? And I said, well, listen, when I study the Scripture, the response to identify with Jesus publicly is not an altar call. It's baptism. Did I just blow the mic out? <laughs> Here's what she said. I can't disagree with you, but I still don't like it. And she, she left. And I said, sister, maybe you need to get baptized. No, I didn't, because I was scared of her. I just want to, you know, honest for you. All right? So, 
So what is, so look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and we're going to hustle, right? Matthew 28, we say this every week, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then here's what he says. Here's marching orders. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Okay? So, so that's the command. And then he describes the activity of that. Okay? So what's he say? Baptizing them, activity number one, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number two, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Okay? So I'll make three quick comments, and that's it. And again, if you're not motivated by these, there's nothing I can do. Uh, comment number one, uh, in this passage, baptism in the original Greek, Greek language is an imperative. And so what that means is it's a command. So what that means is on your spiritual journey of following Jesus, baptism is not some optional step to consider. It's a command from Jesus himself. And Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, obey my commandments. Observation number two. Uh, when you serve the New Testament, baptism by immersion post-salvation is the only mode of baptism modeled in the New Testament. Matter of fact, the word baptism literally means to immerse or to plunge. We don't count it unless you bounce off the bottom of the tank here, all right? Pastor Michael was baptizing someone a few months ago, and they'd come through all kinds of challenges in life. He said, I'm going to baptize this person. I've got a problem. We said, what's the problem? He said, they got an ankle monitor on. I said, it's no big deal. Tasha's got one. Don't worry about that. Totally fine. He said, what do we what do I do? And so we've got a picture of him baptizing this person with their leg hanging out of the tank. And we said, hey, praise God. Here's the bad news. When that guy gets to heaven, his leg's going to be in hell, Michael. How do you feel about that? So if you see a one-legged guy in heaven, you know Michael's fault. Baptizo, to immerse or to plunge. Number three, in the Great Commission, in verse 19, Jesus gives these commands, and, and, and what's he say? Number one, uh, the, the activity of a disciple. I'm assuming you're here this morning because you're interested at some level in being a disciple of Jesus Christ, all right? So that's a foundation. Here's the second thing. I'm gonna argue that Jesus gets to define the habits of a disciple. Is that fair? And so Jesus said, my disciples will do what? Uh, identify with me through baptism, and then seek to live uh, obeying all my commands. Now, let me ask you a question. If that's what Jesus defines the activity of disciple, can a person refuse to be baptized and claim with biblical integrity that they're a disciple of Jesus Christ? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, they also can't do the second thing because if Jesus commanded us to be baptized and we disobey that, then the second half of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, you can't fulfill that part as either. So listen, baptism is not essential salvation. It doesn't get a person to heaven. But here's what I will tell you. You cannot, with a biblical integrity, claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and refuse to be baptized. You say, well, I don't like getting up in front of people. Everyone thinks I've already done it. Everyone's going to realize that when I did do it, it wasn't the biblical way. I, I, you know, I did X, Y, Z, or I wasn't saved, and you know, I've been putting off for years, and you know, I'm not a little kid anymore, and, and just, you know, uh, I, I appreciate all that. Let me, just, let me just say this real quick. This is not the last hard thing Jesus is going to ask you to do to be his follower. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so today, unapologetically, I'm going to ask you to step forward in faith as opposed to standing back in fear.
And here's the promise. You will never regret taking steps of obedience towards Jesus. Would you bow your head this morning? I want to ask you two questions. Is it time for you in your next step to move from dating and dabbling in the church to make a commitment to this church formally? And don't do that because you feel guilty. Listen, do that because you believe that what Jesus said about his church is true. Let that decision be motivated by love, not by guilt. The second question is this, in a room this size, I can't help but believe there are some people who, for, for whatever reasons, you've been putting off baptism. And I just want to encourage you with everything in me as a pastor this morning to step forward in faith and make that commitment. Don't continue to stand back in fear. Father, it's my sincere prayer this morning that whatever steps are taken today, that guilt is not the motivator. Guilt doesn't last. Guilt enslaves hearts. It doesn't transform them. But Lord, for the people that step forward today and make a commitment to your church, for the people that want to step forward today and make a commitment to be baptized, let the motivation be love, love for Jesus and his church. And so Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, embolden us to step forward in faith today, whatever that looks like. Because we love you. Because you first loved us. And so we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who shed his blood for the church. Amen.